Welcome once again to our weekly study on Wednesday evenings. We are just beginning a study in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And glad you're here with us. And we're going to begin with prayer. Father, thank you again for the privilege of having your word so readily in our possession. And we have such access to your word, not only in the the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek, but also in translations into languages which we speak. And we bless you for that, Lord. We know that you have preserved your word for us. So, Father, I pray for each one who joins now and for those that will uh, look at the notes afterwards or listen to the uh, time that we share together, the audio file. Lord, I pray that your word would truly uh, dwell very, very richly within us all and that by your word we would be more and more conformed to the very image of your Son. Father, we thank you that you have preserved your word, and we bless you for your Spirit, your Ruach HaKodesh. Holy Spirit, we bless you and thank you that not only had you inspired these words and carried along those who uh, you chose to write them, but that you have preserved them for us throughout the millennia so that we might know you in truth. So, Father, we pray that the truth of your word would shine forth in each of the sessions that we have, our time, as we study the epistle to the Philippians. And we pray, Father, that it would have its due effect in each of our lives as we seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah. And, O Lord, I pray that in our respective places that we would be testimonies for your goodness and for your greatness and for your love and for the grace that you have bestowed upon us through your Son, Yeshua. Lord, we thank you and we bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read the first chapter. And I have it now in the uh, New American Standard Bible. I am uh, still maintaining my uh, uh, appreciation of the 1995 version of the New American Standard Bible. I do recognize that they have come out now with a uh, updated version 2020. I haven't analyzed it entirely, but I've, I've looked at it a little bit, and there are some things that that are slightly concerning. But uh, so I'm staying with the New American Standard Bible. But we will, throughout our weeks, we'll uh, traverse various translations, the ESV, the NIV, and others, just to see how the uh, translators have handled this great epistle. Uh, this letter that Paul wrote originally to the believers in Philippi. Okay, so here we are for chapter 1 of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Messiah Yeshua. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Messiah having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Yeshua, Messiah, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Messiah has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Messiah even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaimed Messiah out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Messiah is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Messiah will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Messiah, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Messiah Yeshua through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Messiah's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now you obviously saw that I exchanged Messiah for the English word Christ and Yeshua for the English word Jesus. Uh, obviously that is not what the New American Standard uh, Bible has. But I do that just to remind us that uh, Christos means one who's anointed. And that was the Messiah, Mashiach, to anoint. And he is the anointed one. And of course, Yeshua is the uh, Hebrew way of saying Christos, which is the Greek Christ. So um, I like to do that just to remind us that we are talking about Yeshua, who is our Messiah, who came uh, within the Jewish people, and his name meant and means salvation, the one who saves. So I want to spend some time um, in our first session here just looking at a brief, very brief actual introduction uh, to Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Uh, there is much to be questioned uh, and considered when we uh, ask, you know, when did Paul write this? Uh, for what reason did he write it and so forth? But I've tried to compile it into just a few pages so that at least we will have some uh, grasp and some uh, understanding of the basic uh, history of this uh, epistle and uh, why Paul wrote it. Uh, eventually we will see as we go through the four chapters uh, that comprise this letter. And of course, the word epistle uh, is just simply uh, a, a transliteration of the Greek for letter. So it's a letter that he wrote and uh, sent to the various uh, communities uh, while he was in this case, while he was in prison, to encourage them and to instruct them and to warn them of the things that could be unsettling. So Paul's epistle to the Philippians is one of four letters written while he was imprisoned. Uh, the others are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. It's interesting, isn't it, that he had the ability to write and to write uh, so carefully Obviously, there were those who were helping him, bringing him parchment and so forth and so on. And it may well be, even here, that we discover that uh, Timothy may have been, uh, as it were, a secretary for him. Uh, we'll talk about that a bit later. But that he may have dictated uh, much of what uh, is in our epistle to Timothy so that he uh, could write it and take it then to uh, Philippi. Well, much discussion among the commentators has centered around whether the epistle to the Philippians was written by Paul while imprisoned in Caesarea, 
we discover his uh, uh, imprisonment in Caesarea uh, when we read Luke in Luke's uh, history in Acts 24. Or did he write it in Rome when he was imprisoned there? And then there's a question whether he was imprisoned twice, a first and a second imprisonment, with which most would agree with. Others dispute that, but that would seem the case. Some argue that Paul was also imprisoned in Ephesus and that he wrote the epistle of Philippians while incarcerated there. But that's questionable whether he actually was uh, incarcerated there. As Guthrie notes, however, the tradition that has Paul writing his epistle to the Philippians while imprisoned in Rome has the greater weight of evidence. First, the mention of both the praetorium, uh, that is the guard, the praetorium guard that we read there in 113, the, the Greek actually has praetorium, um, and Caesar's household in chapter 4 verse 22 would indicate his being in Rome, especially if the word praetorium is a reference to the praetorian guard or even to the imperial guard for headquarters for these were in Rome. Obviously, they were there to guard and to protect the, the Caesar and so forth and so on. Further, it appears that Paul was awaiting with some sense of eminence the pronouncement of a life or death judgment which would indicate a trial to which there could be no appeal. He was being imprisoned and being tried for that which would, if he was found guilty, uh, be uh, a capital punishment. And there was, there was uh, no way that he could have appealed that as he did uh, for, uh, earlier. So this would rule out the Caesarean imprisonment during which Paul appealed to Caesar in Acts 25 verses 11 and following. Likewise, in 3.15 of our uh, epistle, Paul speaks of as many as are mature or perfect, uh, which would seem more fitting as a description of a considerable community of believers, which fits Rome far better than Caesarea. In Caesarea, they were still uh, very infant in the gathering together of the believers in Yeshua to form a, a community. But in Rome, it was uh, very much a community that was strong and well-founded. So, uh, all of that points to the fact that he's writing while he's in prison in Rome. Also, that Paul had freedom to correspond with the various communities through letters fits the Roman imprisonment best, because even though he was being tried for something that could, in fact, be a capital crime from a Roman uh, imperial perspective, Yet he was, uh, he was given the opportunity to have visitors and so forth and so on. Thus, the date of Paul's writing his epistle to the Philippians is best put, I think, at 61 of the Common Era. And if that's the case, he would be released a year later because from all the chronology that we can discover, he was released in 62 uh, after he was found not guilty of the uh, capital crime. And uh, so he would be released a year later after writing the epistle to the Philippians. So that kind of puts it in a nice perspective. You're just a few years away from the destruction of the temple. <clears throat> and um, we know that uh, after the destruction of the, se uh, the temple in 70, there would have been a wide dispersion of the Jewish people into other parts of the then ancient Near East. Uh, and uh, that would seem then that uh, Paul uh, died uh, some missed a couple of years probably before the destruction of the temple so all of that fits best in my understanding now I don't know that I would <laughs> as I would say fall on my sword for that but all of the uh, evidence seems to uh, pile up on the side of him writing while he was imprisoned in Rome Luke, in writing Acts, gives evidence that the assembly of believers in the city of Philippi were known for their faith in Yeshua. He gives three examples of the power of the gospel in Philippi. And I quote this from um, Guthrie. Uh, they are, one, the devout proselyte, Lydia. And remember, proselyte simply means con convert. Uh, that's the general term, uh, meaning of the term. So the devout proselyte Lydia, a trader in purple cloth from Asia, who serves as a representative of those well prepared to receive the gospel. And so we read about her accepting uh, Yeshua and the gospel uh, in Acts 16:11 through 15. And then secondly, the soothsaying girl whose spirit of div divination was exercised by Paul and who illustrates the triumph of Messiah over the power of darkness in Acts 16. These are all happening 
there in Philippi. And thirdly, the goaler, now that's an old term for jailer, shaken into a realization of his own need by an earthquake. Remember, when the earthquake took place and the uh, uh, Paul and Silas were able to uh, leave, um, he was there and he recognized the the utter power of God to bring about uh, Paul's escape, who shows the power of the gospel to transform entire families for both he and his household were baptized according to Acts 16. So it, it appears very clearly that uh, this was the, this is uh, that Paul was imprisoned there in Rome and these facts seem to add uh, weight to that. The occasion of Paul's writing this epistle may have been that when Epaphroditus was sent to Paul in order to give him things needed to sustain him while in prison, that he also made known to Paul some difficulties the believing assembly in Philippi were undergoing, difficulties that required the community to be admonished by the apostle. You see, because we are all fallen creatures, that is, we have the sinful nature, there is the inevitability, or at least we should say possibility, that there will be ups and downs in any given community of faith. Why is that? It is because we are weak in our ability to humble ourselves before one another and to help one another rather than seeking our own uh, ways and to make our own ways more important than caring and loving for each other. And this seems to have happened then in Philippi. And uh, so it, it, when Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus came and gave uh, some kind of notice to Paul about what was going on in the community, in the, in the believing community, the Yeshua community in Philippi, uh, it seems that he was hoping that Paul would therefore uh, give some admonition to the group to help them get things uh, squared away and overcome their difficulties. One writer has put it this way, It appears, however, that attempts had been made upon them by false prophets. That is, there were false teachers coming into the group there, the community there in Philippi, who wandered hither and thither, with a view of spreading corruptions of sound doctrine. But as they had remained steadfast in the truth, the apostle commends their steadfastness, keeping, however, in mind human frailty. And having perhaps been instructed by Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus that they required to be seasonably confirmed, lest they should in process of time fall away, he subjoins such admonitions as he knew to be suitable to them. And of course, that's kind of older English from Calvin, but I think he has it right. I think Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus came and wanted to encourage Paul and bring help for Paul, probably brought, no, undoubtedly brought things that were necessary for him in terms of clothing or in terms of even food or something. But nonetheless, he, it seems, related to Paul things that were going on in the community there in Philippi which needed to be addressed. And it seems obvious that he felt Paul, being an apostle and having already uh, demonstrated authority in that place, would be the one to encourage them, to instruct them, and even to uh, bring them to a kind of repentance so that the divisions that were taking place would be overcome. Obviously, Paul also wanted the assembly at Philippi to know how grateful he was for the gifts they sent with Epaphroditus, and thus following his admonitions to sound doctrine and life application of the truth, he gives his sincere thanksgiving for all they had sent. At the end, here we have in our epistle of Philippians, he thanks them profusely for the way that they have cared for him and helped him as he was in prison. In concluding the epistle with these words of kindness and thanksgiving, Paul demonstrates his true love and care for those within the believing community and thereby wraps his previous strong admonitions with a true sense of desire that they would be blessed as they received the truth and put it into practice. It's an interesting and I think an important thing for all of us, any of us who are in any leadership position, to see that Paul is able to be very stern and very clear in his admonition 
and what he feels need to be changed and so forth, and yet he does so in such a way as to also uh, um, make known and to, to telegraph, as it were, his love for them. And sometimes it's, uh, it's difficult to put those two together, where you have difficulties that as leaders we must address and yet do so with a real spirit of love and care for those that we lead. All right, so let's do a, a brief outline of the epistle. It's a short epistle. It's four chapters. So uh, it's not extensive, but there is plenty here for us, and uh, it will be a, a real privilege to be able to study together these inspired words of Paul as he sent his uh, admonitions and his teachings to the believers in Philippi. So the first uh, two verses are a greeting. First, Paul and Timothy to the saints, and then with the overseers and deacons, and we'll talk about that a bit more. Then in uh, verses 3 through 8 of the first chapter, he gives uh, uh, aspects of thanksgiving. So he starts out with this positive uh, aspect of uh, talking about what we have in terms of the grace that God has given to us in Yeshua. And I think, you know, we need to constantly be reminded that even in difficult times, and I think we all, I, I would imagine that we all would agree that uh, we're not in ultimately difficult times. There's been far more difficulty in the history of our country, uh, in the United States of America and other parts of the world, but we are feeling some difficulties with all of the recent uh, pandemic and the uh, hard uh, arm of the government uh, requiring us to do this, that, and the other. Uh, but it can still be, and I just want to emphasize this because I think Paul emphasizes it in this epistle, that when we come into very difficult times, it may be the very best time to demonstrate the value of being in the Messiah Yeshua. It may be the time when people are ready to listen to the gospel, which they were not ready to hear before when everything was going just fine. Sometimes the Lord brings upon us difficult times to open up an avenue for the gospel and also to cause us to, to become strengthened in our resolve to be for the Lord what we know we must be, his witnesses, his testimony of the greatness that he's given to us in Yeshua. Well, then the next verses are uh, verses of thanksgiving in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And then verses 9 through 11 in the first chapter is a prayer, a prayer for the believers in Philippi, that their love may increase, that knowledge would be increased and applied. Isn't it interesting that Paul couples love for one another with a growth in a true knowledge of what God has revealed? And then in, cha in uh, verse, verses 12 through 26 of the first chapter, Paul's uh, present cir circumstances, he, he lets us know. His imprisonment has emboldened others to be bold witnesses of the gospel, but not always with right motives. Yet Paul rejoices that the gospel is being made known. So some people may not even have the right motives in giving it. Maybe they're thinking, okay, finally Paul's out of the picture. Now I can take over his job or something to that effect. I don't know. But if they're giving the gospel, the gospel is the power of God that results in salvation to everyone who believes. So then he goes on to say his future is uncertain. As we read, he desires to be with the Messiah and yet desiring to remain. Why? Because he desires to do what the Lord wants him to do, and that is to be a witness to others and to help the fledgling communities to grow and to understand what it means to be followers of Yeshua. And yet in his imprisonment, you can imagine why he would say, you know, if they want to take my life, I'm ready for that. It's an amazing thing to be so settled in that. I think all of us, have, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with this idea of, uh, you know, how is it that my life will end? How much time do I have left on this earth? And so forth and so on. And, uh, and yet Paul seems to say that uh, he desires to be with Messiah, and yet he wants what, what the Messiah wants, uh, if that means to remain and to continue even in his imprisonment to help those uh, that he is leading. Uh, then so be it. But he has this desire, deep desire to be with Yeshua. He's confident that he will be released in order to assist them in their faith ultimately. 
And then as we continue on in chapter 1, he gives certain exhortations. He begins this uh, hard work of expressing to them what they must do and uh, so forth. They must live out their faith, which will result in unity and thus a living testimony of the gospel. They must not fear their opponents, but be strong in faith. Faith that God has given will also enable the believer to suffer for the sake of Messiah. In other words, he's not giving them some kind of prosperity gospel. That, well, if you truly believe in Messiah, everything will just be fine and you'll have no worries. No, that's not it at all. We may need to suffer for the Messiah in order to make our testimony clear and uh, and substantial to those who look on. And then chapter 22 continues the exhortations. Uh, excuse me. The chapter 2 continues the exhortations in uh, uh, 1 through 18 to strive for unity. Isn't it amazing that when there is conflict, the first thing that is tested is our unity. Do we care enough for each other so that we can remain unified even when we disagree? Do we hold the substantial aspects of our faith as that which unites us, even if we disagree on some peripheral issues? And then to practice humility, to have the mind of the Messiah Humility is an essential aspect of our growth in faith. Why? Because humility is what requires is required for us to seek forgiveness for that which we have failed in. We cannot try to push it away and say, oh, it didn't really matter. No, humility is to say, I need to do better. I can do better. I want to do better. But that means right now I'm less than what I should be in terms of what I intend to be. Then he exhorts them to have their lives marked by obedience and purity. And you can understand that when there's division within a community, when there's a lack of unity, then you it's easy to fall into the sin of Lashon Hara, gossip, and uh, to, to compromise what we know to be right and honest and pure. Then he goes on in chapter 2 uh, to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus, Timothy will be sent to Philippi, an explanation for sending Epaphroditus to uh, 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 elsewhere. Okay. Chapter 3, warnings against false teachers. Now, it appears that there were false teachers that had come into the group at Philippi. And uh, they were uh, teaching a salvation based upon works and traditions rather than upon faith through God's grace alone. Uh, many of the commentators will call these uh, Judaizers that they required uh, circumcision, that they required, uh, you know, uh, keeping the law and so forth and so on, the Torah. Well, uh, the scriptures themselves require that of us. But what these teachers were, were doing was saying that if you keep the Torah, if you do this, if you're very meticulous in keeping the Torah, then God will love you. If not, God will not love you. In other words, their whole idea of what we would call salvation or eternal salvation in God is, from their perspective, apparently, was once again gained by being uh, uh, observant to the Torah. When you do the right things, God loves you. When you don't do the right things, he doesn't. And that's clearly not what Paul was teaching, nor what even Moses was teaching. Because why? Because salvation is through faith alone, by God's grace. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we are able to purchase. It's a gift by God's grace to us. And so this salvation by faith alone through God's grace is emphasized there in this passage. Those who teach for self-gain and uh, uh, this world perspective in chapter 3 verses 1 through 16. So what were they getting? They were wanting followers. They wanted to be the one who was extolled and, and raised up and so forth. And Paul says, no. If we're going to be leaders, then we must be servants. We cannot try to bring uh, some kind of special attachment to ourselves. Every leader that truly offers God what he expects and what he wants and what he de uh, not only desires but demands is that it's our job as leaders and teachers, in whatever capacity we may be, to point people to Him. 
that he would receive all the glory. That is the very purpose of the ecclesia, or what some would call the church. The very purpose is that we should glorify and honor him in every aspect of our lives. So Paul uh, gives us this clear teaching that true believers serve Yeshua and await his return. We know that he's coming, and we live with this expectation, and we want to give him all of the glory and all the praise. And then chapter 4, verses 2 through 23, he once again emphasizes the need for unity. Yodia and Syncathy were an example of those that couldn't get along with each other. Uh, And he talks to that very incident. And then he expresses his joy at the Philippians' renewed concern for his welfare because uh, they have sent him that which is necessary. You understand that in uh, in the Roman Empire and in the first century, uh, they didn't feed their, their prisoners. If people didn't bring you food, you died of starvation. If they didn't bring you the necessary things, then that... Because the Roman, uh, they didn't care. If you were incarcerated, you were of no worth. And so he thanks the Philippians uh, for uh, helping him in his uh, in the needs that he has. He has learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, how how important is it for us to strive for that uh, reality that we are content even in difficult circumstances? We don't begin to ask, Oh God, why are you abandoning me? Oh, why aren't you helping me? No. We discover that even in dire circumstances, we are enabled to be the, the testimony for him and of his greatness. And that's what Paul said. He'd learned to be content in all circumstances. He recalls their earlier generosity and thanks them for it. He describes their care for him as a fragrant offering to God. And then, ultimately, he ends this short epistle with a concluding salutation. All right, so let's just look at the first two verses more uh, more uh, in depth. We read, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Messiah Yeshua to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. Here once again, and I just note this right off the bat, that Paul uses his favorite phrase, in Messiah. That means to be united with him. That means our life is bound up with him and his life is bound up with us. And that means that it uh, it affects every aspect of our life. We don't compartmentalize our lives as though this part is for Yeshua, that part's for me, this part's for some... No, no. All that we are and all that we hope to be is is given over to the Lord for His glory, for His grace. When we're able to have a, re, a restful, wonderful vacation or something, why? It's because of His grace. When we're able to have health and work at our job and make a living, it's He receives the glory. When we're able to help someone else, He receives the glory. When we're able to bear up under our difficulties, on what basis are we able to do that? because he enables us to do it. Everything good comes from him, and we give him the praise for it. All right, Paul begins all of his letters with his name, uh, Paulos. Now, that actually is a Latin term, but it's made in, it's it, uh, written in Greek. But uh, there's different ideas of what it means, but it can mean something small, something insignificant, which is interesting. And it includes Timothy, Timotheos, which means to honor God. Timao is the Greek word to honor and Theos God. Here, as well as in the opening of 2 Corinthians, Colossians, and Philemon, we see both Paul and Timothy. In the opening of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Timothy is included as well as Silvanus. But when Paul includes his fellow worker, Timothy, in the opening of these epistles, and particularly in our epistle, it is not to indicate that both he and Timothy were authors of the letter. You could read it that way. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Messiah Yeshua to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua. So it may sound as though they're both kind of involved in the writing of it, but that's not the case at all. 
uh, it may have been that Timothy acted as an amanuensis, which is just a long word for a secretary, one who takes dictation or writes manuscripts. But it is most likely that Timothy's name was added since he was well known to the Philippian ecclesia, that is, the gathered body of the Messiah. I use the Greek word ecclesia, which means a gathering, but it's used throughout the apostolic scriptures to speak of the believing community that comes together. And uh, I don't despise the word church, but I think in our time, church is misunderstood, or it could be understood. Some people, when they hear church, they think of, of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, especially if they grew up in that, uh, in that church. So I, I tend to use the word ecclesia. I'm not opposed to the word church, but I just use the word ecclesia to mean the gathered body of the Messiah in a given location. So he was well known to the Philippian Ecclesia as Paul's close friend and companion. Timothy is, was well known for that. Indeed, Timothy had assisted Paul in founding the believing community in Philippi. One, uh, we read this in Acts uh, 6, 16. I've chosen verses 1 through 2 and verse 4. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches, or the ecclesia, were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Timothy regularly accompanied Paul as he traveled to take the gospel to many regions and to strengthen and encourage the believers who were in these regions. This indicates an apostolic pattern of making disciples, as well as offering a clear example that those sent out to do this kind of work should never go by oneself. Rather, they should be accompanied by at least one other worker. Everywhere we find Paul going, some say, well, he went by himself here or there. No, there were always people where he was going that would be with him if he didn't take some with him initially. He didn't minister by himself. And this is a pattern that we find throughout the apostolic scriptures. And this is why uh, we should take the view that when we're sending, if a, if a community, if a local uh, messianic community uh, wants to send somebody out or somebody wants to go out to uh, be uh, a mission voice in another area, they need to be accompanied by another man. There needs to be at least two men who can help each other. For not only does this bring strength and companionship in the work being done, but it also strengthens the message. For in the mouth of two or three a thing is established according to the Torah in Deuteronomy 19.15. So he says the bondservants of Messiah Yeshua, the Greek douloi Christo Yesu, is translated by the NASB as bondservants, since in the ancient world a servant or a slave, and the Greek doulos simply means servant or slave, was owned by his or her master. In other words, you actually owned the person. They could not go or do anything without your permission. Paul uses this same description in his in, introductory salutations of Romans and Titus as well. In other of Paul's epistles, he identifies himself by adding apostle. We find this in 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and First and Second Timothy. He always says, Paul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua. It may well be that the reason he does not do so in this letter, in, in Philippians, was because he was fully accepted by the believing community in Philippi, and his apostolic authority was not being challenged. In other words, he didn't have to add, I'm an apostle of Messiah, because they already knew that and they had accepted it fully. He therefore did not feel the need to remind them of his apostolic office. That's at least one suggestion. By referring to himself and Timothy as bondservants of Yeshua, Paul is not emphasizing the servile aspect of being a slave. In other words, in the ancient world, a slave had no, had no freedom, had no ability to be on their own. The slave did exactly what they were told or they were punished. So when he calls himself a bondservant, when he calls himself and Timothy bondservants of Yeshua, he's not, he's not uh, thinking in that term of being a slave, but rather he expresses the thoughts of a cheerful and willing service to the one who died for him and gave him true life and life eternal. Indeed, being a bondservant of Yeshua is to experience true freedom. I know that sounds opposite, but it's true, isn't it? 
Paul writes in Romans 6, verses 18 and 22, And having been freed from sin, we were slaves to sin, right? This is what he says in this passage. Being freed from sin, we're no longer owned by sin. You become slaves of righteousness. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. This is true freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever I want to do. True freedom is the ability to do what God wants us to do and to make it a pattern of our life. This is where we gain freedom. Sin is that which entangles. Freedom is to be in obedience and to be submissive to the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, as we are one in the Messiah. But what does it mean to be a bondservant of Yeshua? It is clear by the fact that Paul uses the plural bondservants, thus including Timothy, that being a bondservant of Yeshua is not restricted to someone in a position of authority, such as an apostle or designated leader in a community of faith. Rather, all who are believers in Yeshua must strive to see themselves as owned by Him and as therefore desirous to live one's life, uh, one, uh, live one's life uh, as a pleasing to him and fulfilling his desires. It is in this role as a bondservant of Yeshua that the one who is born again finds the greatest freedom and fulfillment in this life. Isn't it true that we find the, the greatest freedom in life when we are obedient to him? When we are obedient to him and strive to do as he intends us to do, we find life works It's when we are selfish, when we are seeking to be self-fulfilled at the cost of of, uh, unrighteousness that we become slaves again to the sinful nature. But he has redeemed us from that. We must yield ourselves consistently to him if we seek to enjoy the freedom that he's given us. Now they write to uh, Paul writes to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi. The Greek word often translated by English saints, as you probably know, is hagios, uh, which has as its basic meaning holy. That is those who are holy. That is those who are set apart and sanctified. It's unfortunate that certain parts of the Christian Church have used this term saints to denote someone who has done extraordinary work in the church and who is therefore being singled out as having greater importance and holiness. I think we're afraid to use the word saints. I shouldn't say afraid. We're hesitant to use the word saints because it's so oftentimes uh, understood as something from the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church because they have all of their saints and they have saint days and so forth and so on. But everyone who is in Messiah is a holy one. Why? Because we have been given the holiness of Yeshua himself. So, the idea that it is to uh, extol some extraordinary person in the church is not how the term is used in the scriptures. Here in our text, as elsewhere in the apostolic scriptures, it is used to denote those redeemed individuals who comprise a believing community, an ecclesia, describing them as set apart from the world and unto Yeshua through the saving work of Yeshua in redeeming them unto himself. Further, the inevitable result of being redeemed, born from above, is to live more and more righteously, even as he is righteous. You know, this doesn't just happen automatically. It is very interesting that when God saves us, it's entirely of his grace and entirely of his sovereignty. But then he makes us partners together with him. We must set ourselves to set our minds upon things above and not on the earth. We must say no to the flesh, to the sinful flesh. We must learn his word, hide it in our hearts so they wouldn't sin against him. Know what he desires. We must have the communion and fellowship of one another, the believers within the community, to encourage each other and through prayer and through encouraging, we help one another grow up under the fullness which is the Messiah. And so... This is the call at the very beginning of this epistle, that we should understand who we are in the Messiah and make that the absolute, utter priority of our life. 
and we can do so in every aspect of our life. As long as each aspect of our life is honoring to Him. We can do that in our work. We can do that in our relationships. We can do that in our families. We can do that in even what we might consider mundane work. To do it as unto Him. In the best of our ability. And to give Him praise and honor. Even for our strength and ability to accomplish servile work. Further, the inevitable result of being redeemed, born from above, is to live more and more righteously, even as he is righteous. This, therefore, ought to be foremost in the hearts and minds of all who comprise a community of faith, that the watching world would see them, both in their individual lives as well as in their corporate identity, as lights of God's greatness and love. But to honestly strive for this high calling requires ongoing growth in becoming what God intends us to be, And this, in turn, requires a humble spirit. We have to recognize that we are not all that we want to be. And how do we uh, become what God wants us to be? We must discipline ourselves to the means of grace. What are the means of grace? They are the Word of God. That needs to be something that is regularly part of our daily life. It is prayer, and that too must be something that we regularly engage in, not only for our own needs, but for the needs of others, and praying together with our family and so forth. And then the third means of grace, of course, is the communion of the saints, as the Reformers would have said. That is, friendship, companionship, regularly meeting together with other believers so that we can encourage each other and help one another. This is the life that God has called us to, if indeed we are his. He goes on to say, including the overseers and deacons. Overseer, episkopos, of course we get our word episcopal from that, and it's oftentimes translated in some versions as bishops, because the Episcopal Church used bishop as uh, the word that would identify an overseer is used interchangeably in the Bible with elders, which is presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian, because this Presbyterian uh, denomination was known for a multiple kind of a board or leadership of presbyters. So, he says, including the overseers and deacons. Overseer is used interchangeably with elders in the scriptures. We see this in Acts 20, verse 17, in which Luke relates that Paul sent for the elders of the ecclesia. And when he sent for the elders and they convened together, he, he, we, well, he read, we read, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the ecclesia. Okay? So, the presbyteroi. Yet when they came, Paul is addressing them, and, and Paul is addressing them, he refers to them as overseers. He calls for the elders, and then he refers to them as overseers, as we read in in Acts. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the ecclesia of God which he purchased with his own blood. So we see that the elders or the overseers are the very ones who shepherd the people, who teach, who guard and help train uh, those that they have the opportunity to lead. Thus, those who are designated as teachers and pastors within the local believing community are elders who oversee, who are likewise shepherds, and whose duty is to shepherd the ecclesia of God. Now, deacons, diakonos, carries the sense of a person who helps others who are in need within the body of Messiah, particularly physical needs, the local ecclesia. It appears that this office or designated position within the apostolic ecclesia may have found its beginning in Acts 6, in which widows within the believing community were not being properly cared for. And we read, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here it appears as though we have the beginning of overseers, or shall we say uh, elders, who were caring particularly with the, the, the preparation and teaching of the word and the spiritual aspects of the community, whereas those seven that were designated would take care of more of the physical aspects. The use of overseers and deacons in Paul's opening of this epistle is an important witness to the fact that these two positions were well in place in the early apostolic ecclesia. There are some, however, who deny that such organized offices within the ecclesia would have been established so early in the emerging ecclesia Yeshua promised to build. But the evidence overwhelmingly supports that these offices were established within the ecclesia uh, comprised of the followers, followers of Yeshua. Guthrie, in his discussing the mention of overseers and deacons in our text, makes this bold statement. Their specific mention here shows indisputably that two distinct order, orders of off officials were in existence at an early stage in the history of the church. Now, he would say in the history of the church, meaning the followers of Yeshua, and how they formed their own synagogues and so forth and so on. Those who dispute that such a state of organization could have existed in Paul's lifetime are hard put to explain away the present reference. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. It's clear that very early on in the emerging uh, 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 congregations of the way, those who were followers of Yeshua, who were uh, many of whom were kicked out of established synagogues because of their uh, statement of faith in Yeshua and so forth, that they very early on uh, formulated what was the the apostolic uh, uh, idea of having both teachers of the word and shepherds to help people in their spiritual walk, but also those to look after the physical needs of the people. And so we have the overseer or the uh, elder, those two terms used of the same office, and uh, the diakonos, those used of uh, the office to care for the physical needs of those who were uh, in the community. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. Paul uses the same combination, grace and peace, in the opening salutation uh, of Titus. He, we read in Titus 1, grace and peace from God the Father and Messiah Yeshua our Savior. Here in our text he adds grace to you. But what is interesting is that in both cases, Paul puts grace before peace. He says, grace to you and peace. And it seems very probable that this is in line with Paul's primary theology, namely, that every good thing the child of God has is the result of God's grace. So peace is the result of grace. Therefore, grace comes first and peace comes from God's grace. Here in specific, genuine peace both inward as well as that which enables the child of God to persevere in times of hardship, comes from trusting God, and thus such peace is the gift of God's grace. In addition, what is obvious is that God's special and specific grace, which he gives to his children, flows from the work of Yeshua as our Lord and Savior and living intercessor, where we read in Hebrews 7:24 that he always lives to make intercession for us. All those who are in Messiah, and this is already in our text, Paul has already used this phrase, in Messiah, are saved by his grace and have access to the shalom which only he can provide. Okay, so we have uh, at least gotten a brief introduction and the first two verses. We will continue to go verse by verse as we meet uh, each Wednesday. And I look forward to being with you as we continue our study in the epistle of Philippians.